Brooks, Dantrue Leyland. When I was a kid, I was of the opinion that, away from the telly, Star Trek worked better in novels, while Star Wars worked better in comics. The rationale was easy. Star Trek was proper science fiction, and this could be explored far more deeply in novels, while Star Wars, being a pulpy fantasy, was better represented in the four-colour world of comics. Of course, the experience at the time was somewhat limited. Marvel were the only comics company publishing Star Wars, and they'd made a pretty decent stab at taking George Lucas's little Flash Gordon knockoff and putting it on the printed page. The Star Trek novels of my youth were also more in the vein of hard sci-fi, which probably coloured my perceptions. Books like Vonda McIntyre's The Entropy Effect, Diane Duane's The Wounded Sky, and a few others, had a lot of hard science chucked into the Trek blender, making them feel more mature and edgier than the TV show. Star Wars novels, in contrast, were not only less plentiful, consisting of the three film adaptations, three Han Solo adventures, three Lando Calrissian adventures, and Splinter of the Mind's Eye, a cheapest chip sequel idea, but they were also leaning more in the direction of fast-paced adventure novels, similar to the film. Star Trek comics were more widely available as well. Star Trek had been around in comics form since 1966, first published by Gold Key and latterly by Marvel Comics. There were also a few newspaper strips, but largely these just told other adventures, whereas the novels had expanded the canon, developed the relationships, and even filled in the gaps between the TV shows and the films. Surely there was a way for the comics to do this as well. In 1982, this came to pass, when DC Comics obtained the license, and they started producing a Star Trek comic series that was every bit as good as what came before, and arguably after. Firstly, DC took a leaf out of the Marvel playbook. They set their series in the here and now. Picking up directly after Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the series dealt with the fallout of Spock's death, and gave Savick more of a key role even fleshing out her half-Romulan, half-Vulcan heritage, as specified in the novel of the film, but only alluded to in the movie itself. They also had free reign to bring back characters and concepts from the TV show, something denied Marvel and Gold Key. Yes, it meant they had to jump through hoops to make the stories fit in between the movies, especially films 2, 3 and 4, which essentially form a complete narrative, but having access to Harve Bennett, producer of the films, allowed for some deft sleight of hand. DC held a license until 1996, covering two volumes of the original show, running for 56 and 80 issues respectively. A Next Generation series, initially a six-issue mini, but then a continuing series, also ran for 80 issues, as well as numerous graphic novels, annuals, one-shots, and even a who's who. The D-series had a number of really good stories over the duration of its licence, although Volume 1 had far more creative freedom than Volume 2. DC even produced a successful Next Generation original series crossover long before the series did. There was an amazing level of creative consistency to the DC series, with the same artistic teams providing art for many years, and a surprisingly small turnover in the writers, leading to a higher level of storytelling quality. Writers like Peter David, Ye Michael Friedman and Howard Weinstein wrote the bulk of the run, all popular Star Trek novelists. 
They were joined by other seasoned comic vets or novelists such as Diane Duane, Mike W. Barr and Len Wein. With that in mind, let's cast our eyes back and have a look-see at some of the finest Star Trek comics published at DC at this time. Star Trek Debt The first large-scale original Star Trek graphic novel was this one, written by comics legend and godfather of the X-Men Chris Claremont and drawn by Adam Hughes. Debt of Honour is a sweeping story, starting in the present day, post-Star Trek IV, flashing back to Captain Kirk on the Farragut before the original series began, and then jumping around in time to the original series, specifically in the aftermath of the episode The Doomsday Machine, just after Star Trek The Motion Picture, and then back to the present day. The story concerns a bizarre alien life form that Kirk has encountered over the duration of his career, but that he has never been able to properly prove actually exists. Only a Romulan Vulcan half-breed, Tassel, has seen this life form, and only she and Kirk can properly defeat it. On one hand, Debt of Honour is a remarkably fun story, benefiting greatly from Hughes' art and Clermont's attention to detail and continuity. On the other, there's far too much continuity here, with pretty much every crew member who ever appeared on the original show reappearing to help Kirk face down this enormous threat. It makes it look like the only time that mattered in these people's lives was the original five-year mission. Did the crew never meet anyone outside of that time frame that had any impact on their lives? There was another five-year mission after the motion picture, in which, apparently, nothing of import occurred. There's also the suggestion that Tassel's daughter, Takia, is Kirk's daughter, which is off-putting, and in the wake of David Marcus, implies that James T. Kirk, infamous ladies' man, has a real problem understanding the concept of contraception. Given that this was an expensive hardcover graphic novel released to capitalise on Trek's 25th anniversary, some of the production value is also of a lesser quality. There are some horrendous snafus in the lettering, with ill-placed word balloons that just distract from the reading experience. Some are just horrendously overcrowded, and some judicious editing of Clermont's copious dialogue may not have been a bad thing. Others look badly formatted, with random words that should be centred hanging to the left or right, whilst others still just look pasted up at the last minute. And don't get me started on Clermont's insistence on writing Dr. McCoy with a southern brogue. These issues... Minor nitpicks in the grand scheme of things don't really hamper the story, which is nicely epic and grandiose, and Hughes' artwork is simply stunning, even if his portrayal of Kirk is incredibly flattering to William Shatner. Yes, it's horribly overwritten. It's Chris Claremont, and at 96 pages it does outstay its welcome. But it's nice to see the whales, George and Gracie, and Dr Gillian Taylor again, and ultimately this is a rewarding and fun Star Trek issue 19, Once a Hero, written by Peter David, with art by Gordon Purcell and Arne Starr. Peter David started writing for DC's Star Trek comic in the waning days of the first volume, with stories about the pacifist Klingon, Conum Stagdu, and a trip to hell. DC then entered a prolonged period of negotiation with Paramount Pictures as to the renewal of the license, and when all this was sorted, the title was relaunched on the back of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Editor Robert Greenberger rehired David as the writer. Despite
Despite his many years of writing critically and commercially successful Trek novels and comics, David fell afoul of then-Paramount liaison Richard Arnold, who, according to David, took a dislike to the writer's work and demanded constant changes and alterations, frequently gutting storylines to satisfy his capricious whims and bad-mouthing him to Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Writer Diane Duane also fell afoul of Arnold, which I think tells you everything you need to know, given that Duane's books were some of the best of the range. Frequently, David would find his scripts rejected for being too comedic and not taking the characters seriously enough. Other scripts were rejected for being not simplistic enough for Trek fans. David, fed up, decided to quit the book rather than cause constant hassles for editor Bob Greenberger. He did, however, go out with a bang, and his last issue is one of the best Trek stories he's ever written. Once a hero centres on the death of a random security officer, Thomas Lee, killed, saving Kirk's life. As is the custom, Kirk is tasked with writing Lee's obituary, but is aghast to discover he knows nothing about the young man who sacrificed himself to save his commanding officer. In fact, nobody knew him that well, as he'd only recently transferred aboard. The issue concludes with one of Kirk's inspirational speeches, in which he tosses away the standard Starfleet rhetoric and gives an impassioned eulogy to a man they hardly knew. Something often overlooked in Star Trek is Kirk's way with words. As delivered by William Shatner, Kirk was one of the finest orators in TV history, capable of making even hardened cynics stand up and cheer when he really let loose. It's one of the things I like about him. He's every bit as good with words and diplomacy as Picard is. Peter David taps into this aspect of Kirk's character exceptionally well. In addition, he also taps into an off-mocked part of Trek lore, the death of the red shirt. It's become a joke, and yet David turns it into a tragedy, reminding us that Kirk was often far more upset and disturbed by casual brutality and death than either Picard or Janeway. He also structures the story in an interesting and novel way, and all credit to him for never allowing this to become confusing. I used to really like Peter David's work in my late teens and early to mid-twenties, but somewhere along the line I fell out of love with it. Which is fine. Not everything goes with you throughout your entire life. My issues do mainly stale from his humour, and I sometimes think maybe Richard Arnold had a point. Like Joss Whedon, he's a very capable, often brilliant writer, but he's not afraid to sell out his characters for a cheap gag, which often undercuts a character moment or a dramatic beat. Thankfully, this issue is largely free of that, presumably due to the seriousness of the story. Characterisation is a little off in places, with Kirk being a little bit more of an ass than usual, and the supplemental cast aren't really given anything to do. Sulu gets to say standard orbit, Spock scans stuff with his tricorder, Mahura doesn't say anything, but that's not what this story's about. Ultimately, it's a story about loss. David draws attention to the fact that we should get to know people, the real people, because one day they won't be there anymore. The ending is a huge info dump, as David has Kirk explain the plot in a huge couple of word balloons to tie everything up, but the actual eulogy is wonderfully written by David, and you can hear Shatner delivering those lines. David nails this part of the story and closes the book on the nameless redshirt cliché in fine style. One of my favourite stories that Peter David has ever written. The next two picks have been lumped together, as I've talked about them before, whenever I've talked about Trek comics, but that's because they're really very good. Star Trek Annual Number 1, all those years ago, and Annual Number 2, the 
Final Voyage, a bookends, both written by Mike W. Burr, with art on Annual 1 by Luke Ross and Bob Smith, and Annual 2 by Dan Jurgens and Bob Smith. Written at a time when every little nook and cranny of Trek lore hadn't been explored, these two stories, covering Kirk's first and last mission as Captain of the Enterprise respectively, are better than any subsequent attempt to mine this era, largely because Barr knew when to call back and when to be professional. See, my issue with a lot of Trek stories since The Wrath of Khan is the author's insistence on bringing back any and all aspects of Trek lore and trying to tie it all together. It's fine to suggest that Trelane was a Q. It's another to try and link Vija to the Borg and the Doomsday Machine, or bring back minor characters like Mira Romain. Barr avoids that in his first annual, where the callbacks are logical and necessary. He has to have Gary Mitchell in the story. The aesthetic should look like the original pilot episodes. And if he has to stretch continuity to breaking point to give McCoy a role in the story, then, you know, a Star Trek story without Kirk, Spock and McCoy was unthinkable back then. But the story he tells is a new one. It isn't just a return to the mirror universe or a rematch with Core. Character continuity and creative consistency are a different thing to fan service and story nods, and Barr handles it adroitly. Annual 2, however, does feature returns and rematches, but it's the final episode, so to call back to how it all began is appropriate. Also, the producers of Star Trek The Next Generation thought, when they did exactly the same thing for the Next Generation finale, all good things. In annual number two, the Enterprise is headed for home at the end of the successful five-year mission, but are cornered by Klingon Captain Koloth, who has learned about Talos IV, home of the Talosians, from the TV episode The Menagerie. It's a darker trek than we are perhaps used to, but it redeems Koloth, taking him from the toothless dandy of the trouble with tribbles and turning him into a credible threat. The story also lays the groundwork for Star Trek The Motion Picture with the introduction of some new uniforms and setting up the Enterprise's refit. These two annuals still stand up today as some of the best Trek comics we ever got and are far preferable to other tales telling essentially the same event. Peter David, as I mentioned, was not the only Trek novelist to dip his toes into Trek comics. Noted writer Diane Duane wrote a couple of issues in the DC run as well. Her most famous is the comedic Agir vs. the Grand two-parter, which was subsequently reprinted in DC's The Best of Star Trek trade. But for my money, her single-issue tale The Last Word, which first saw print in Star Trek Volume 1, Issue 28, was the preferred story. The Last Word is a Dr. McCoy story, and essentially sees him as a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern-type character. We follow McCoy's day rather than what's happening on the bridge or what shenanigans the landing party are up to on the planet below. It's also a day-in-the-life tale, starting with McCoy waking up in the morning and ending when his shift concludes. Duane is a registered nurse, and it's clear she has a soft spot for McCoy, something she would revisit in her novel Doctor's Orders, but this story, dealing with loss and ultimately how a doctor goes about healing, is a touching tale. McCoy recommends a change to the landing party roster, but one of his suggestions ends up killed when the visit turns sour. McCoy must put aside his feelings of guilt to try and save the other injured member of the landing party. Notable because Kirk only appears once or twice, and both times it's an inversion of the usual Kirk-McCoy scene, this is a McCoy story through and through. Traditionally, McCoy is the shoulder for Kirk to lean on when things are getting tough, but here it's Kirk providing the friendly ear for a troubled and upset McCoy. Both scenes are well written. 
McCoy can't get the other landing party crew member to come around, even though there's nothing physically wrong with him, and he realises that he's shut down after the death of his friend. Reasoning that he may still have a few of Spock's marbles rolling around in the old noggin, he tries to mind-meld with the crewmen to save their life on a mental plane, and then hopefully, the physical. It's a quiet, character-based story that would have worked well as an episode. In fact, it did, as Enterprise did a similar show about Dr. Phlox, but sadly this would have been a much tougher sell for 60s TV. Even if the producers had gone for such a quiet story, I doubt Shatner or Nimoy's ego would have allowed the actors to take a back seat like this. Aside, I never understood that. What, I'm being given my full TV star salary but I don't have to work half a day this week? Results, I'd be filming my half day and off down the pub. If Kirk is only present in a scene or two, Spock is little more than a cameo, appearing only in the mind-meld dreamscape. But as with the Kirk scenes, it's the quality of the moment that counts. The last word is a touching and tender story, one that sadly doesn't seem to have been reprinted, nor is it as available digitally. The last word is a touching and tender story, one that sadly doesn't seem to have been reprinted, apart from in the Partworks collections of Trek comics that have been published recently. It doesn't seem to be available digitally either, unless you have access to the CD-ROM from a few years ago. The Modala Imperative was an eight-issue limited series published to celebrate the 25th anniversary in 1991. Four issues were an original series story by Michael Jan Friedman, and four issues were a sequel set 100 years later in the Next Generation timeframe and written by Peter David. All eight issues had out by Pablo Marcos. Now, first off, the Next Generation movie Generations, released in 1994, was set 80 years after the events of The Next Generation. So the timelines don't really match up, but, you know, whatever. Canon in Star Trek is malleable. Secondly, it's really fun the hoops the Next Generation portion of this story jump through, to not mention what became of Captain Kirk or Chekhov, who are major players in the original series set story. And by fun to watch them jump through hoops, I mean they just don't address it. At all. McCoy is simply mentioned as being the only member of the four, Kirk, Chekhov, McCoy and Spock, who is available for the Modalan celebrations. Spock takes it upon himself to attend later, but Kirk and Chekhov were apparently busy. We now know that Kirk was faffing around in the Nexus with some old flame called Antonia, but Chekhov's whereabouts are still a mystery. The story has the Enterprise of the 23rd century visit the planet Modala, only to find the planet in a state of fascist uprising. Kirk mentions in his log that he previously visited the planet as an ensign, but then states that this was on the Enterprise and Pike was in command, and that they had hoped Modala would be now ready for Federation membership. Now, I can look past the Kirk, Chekhov and Timeline goofs as they're pretty much retroactive errors. Generations hadn't happened yet, so Kirk's fate was unknown, and there was a chance, however slim, that Chekhov would make a comeback of some kind. However, I don't recall any previous Trek story referring to Kirk as having served under Pike on the Enterprise. In fact, his history, as established in the TV show, would seem to preclude this. This seems like a goof that editor Robert Greenberger should have caught. Anyway, Kirk and Chekhov become embroiled in the uprising, and it turns out the Modalans have been provided weaponry out of the technological skill of current Modalan development. And as such, the course of the planet's development is out of whack. Kirk tries to restore peace to the planet, electing a leader from the men he and Chekhov encounter, Stryka, to lead the rebellion against the people who have used advanced weaponry to take the capital. 
It's a fun story, redolent of episodes like Return of the Archons or Errand of Mercy, wherein Kirk at least tries not to break the Prime Directive. Bend it? Sure. Manipulate it? Definitely. Work around it? Absolutely. But he doesn't break it. It all ends reasonably well with Kirk in full-on inspirational speech mode, telling Stroika a bloodless coup is better than littering the roads with dead bodies. And the Enterprise leaves, hoping Madala will find its own way and gain Federation membership somewhere down the line. The mystery of who provided the advanced weapons is left unresolved. These issues are really good. The regular DC comic series was written by Peter David, with Friedman writing the Next Generation comic, so editor Greenberger thought it would be fun to swap the writers around for this assignment, and in this original series set mini, this reaps dividends, with Friedman capturing the tone and feel of an episode very successfully. The Next Generation series that follows is slightly less successful, but still entertaining, and is at least as good as the better Next Generation Star Trek crossovers, like the episodes Relics and Sarek, and better than other shows like Unification and the aforementioned movie Generations. The story picks up with the Modalen celebrating 100 years of a free government, and invites the Enterprise and any surviving crew members from that time to the ceremony. Picard's Enterprise picks up Dr. McCoy, seen alive and well, if slightly decrepit in the first episode of The Next Generation, and Spock, established in the episode Sadak as still being around and active. Kudos to the series as well for prefiguring that Spock will be an ambassador when he eventually appears on the show. The Next Generation portion of the story is less successful because David's brand of humour doesn't really translate to The Next Generation, a largely humorless bunch by and large. David's brand of snark is out of place in a Next Generation story, odd given how many acclaimed Next Generation novels he wrote. He does capture Spock and McCoy well though, again, Spock is a little bit snarkier than usual, although he's older. Many of us give less of a shit of what we say as we get older. Pablo Marcos's art also seemed to suit the original series better than the next generation. Overall, though, the Modala Imperative is a great ride, and worthy of inclusion because of its ambition. It's hampered a little by being unable to say what became of Kirk or Chekhov. Important characters in the first half of the story just disappear in the second half, but it's still a good cross-generational tale from a time when they were very rare, and therefore more special. Speaking of Ruhr, one of the Ruhr Next Generation recommendations coming up now. My approach to Trek is weird. I like the other iterations of the series just fine. I watched The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine religiously, and later grew to enjoy both Voyager and Enterprise. But in terms of the side material, books, comics, and other assorted paraphernalia, my preferred choice is the original. I tend to find the original series has the characters I'm more interested in. The universe doesn't feel as cosy, and there's plenty of room for extrapolation. The Next Generation had seven seasons of episodes, and the movies picked up almost immediately afterwards, so there's not much space for untold adventures. As such, the regular DC comic series slotted in and around the episodes as they were currently erring, as the comic was being produced as the series was still in production, and therefore could be contradicted on a weekly basis. One adventure that has no doubt been contradicted, but still remains eminently enjoyable, was The Worst of Both Worlds, as originally serialised in the monthly comic series issues 47 through 50. Taking its cues from two of the best episodes, The Best of Both Worlds and Yesterday's Enterprise, this story sees the Enterprise discover a spatial anomaly, again, that sends the crew to a parallel universe where the Borg won the Battle of Wolf 359 and have essentially taken over the Alpha Quadrant. 
The fun here is in seeing how the characters are different. Chief O'Brien never married Keiko and therefore never had a child. Wesley is still aboard, but his mother Beverly is dead, and Geordie is a lot harder and tougher as a character. These characters clash with the usual holier-than-thou next-gen crew, as having lived a more battle-weary life, they find themselves hardened by the experience. The story is rather predictable. We know the crew will have to work together, we know they'll rescue alternative universe Picard, and we know our crew will find a way home. But the character moments and some decent action sequences save the day. Friedman writes well, although the art is a tad stiff, and one can argue that perhaps Commander Shelby is a tad out of character, being positively mutinous, but that's one of the main story threads, so, you know, it works in context. And it's a shame that DC never had the rights to Deep Space Nine, as it would have been much more fun to see what those characters were up to in a universe controlled by the Borg. Would Cisco, for example, have been in charge of the Enterprise? That would have been a delight, seeing Ben as captain with Dax as his first officer, and the rest of the next-gen crew working for them. Still, The Worst of Both Worlds was an entertaining way to celebrate the 50th issue of the series. DC lost the rights to Star Trek in 1996. Paramount felt they could better exploit the material themselves and started a line of books from Paramount Publishing and licensed them to Marvel to produce the comics adaptation of First Contact and then initiated such imaginative ideas as a Star Trek X-Men crossover. To be fair, many decent writers crafted the new Marvel series and some of them were quite good, but my heart was with the DC run. If the DC series had its flaws, it was in the writer's constant need to revisit characters and concepts from the TV show. Just because you can do a thing, doesn't mean you should. And this, more than anything, led to my growing disinterest in both the comics and the novels. It's called boldly going, not boldly looking backwards. Still, overall, DC Comics Star Trek helped make me a fan. The initial launch in 1984 coincided with me seeing Star Trek III, and re-watching the original show being broadcast in order for the first time on the BBC. The DC era accompanied Star Trek through some of its most fertile creative ground and its greatest commercial success. The original cast movies, the debut of The Next Generation and its dominance of the ratings and the success of the first Next Generation movie all happened during DC's time publishing the comic. DC told some great stories, capitalising on the last time Star Trek was universally popular and critically accepted. They created untold tales and broke new ground, filled in gaps and gave us firsts. They told stories set in the present, the past and alternative universes. They invited Trek actors and authors to join the party, giving the series a legitimacy previous iterations hadn't possessed. They proved Star Trek could be done in comics and done well, and essentially gave it a life in comics far beyond the scope of the shows. Without it, it's doubtful IDW would still be publishing Star Trek comics today. In 1974, four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, and Paul Stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see. Over the next 40 plus years, the music, the makeup, the merchandise, and the loyal fan base have propelled KISS to one of rock and roll's elite groups. With KISS heading down their end of the road tour, we thought we would start our journey. Turn it up to 10 because we love it loud. Right Between the Eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band, KISS. 
We will be covering all eras of Kiss with the various albums, studio, live, and compilations, plus album mashups and more. We will also cover solo and band projects from all members, past and present, while also looking at the various bands that have opened for Kiss as well. Not to mention all of the fun items in the KISS catalog. TV appearances, long-form videos, merchandise, comic books. Come on, the list goes on and on. Coming in late May, early June 2021 to a podcast platform near you. Follow us on Twitter at RBTE Podcast. Loud. I want to hear it loud. Right between the eyes. I want to hear it loud. in the email sack. Mark Adams has emailed him. Hello, Mark. The episode of Palace of Glittering Delights got me longing to rewatch Burn Notice, just as we got Disney Plus, which has it on the star segment of the streaming service. I came across the pilot back in the day by accident when it first was on TV, thinking it was going to just be another hard man-centric TV show. I was pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be a cross between the A-Team and Magnum P.I., The only fly in the ointment is Fiona being an ex-IRA operative, which is a bit too close to home to make me comfortable. But as this is make-believe and isn't mentioned much, I let it slide. Yeah, it's always... I do wonder what they were thinking when they made that decision. It's like they needed a a way for Fiona to be as competent as Michael, but without actually having to be in the military or whatever, for whatever reason. I don't know why... She couldn't have been an ex-military, but I don't know. So they decided to make her an ex-IRA operative. And you're kind of like, really? Okay. You're really going with that? All right. And yeah, they don't really mention it that much, apart from a couple of god-awful episodes where Jeffrey Donovan does an Irish accent, which sucks. His Irish accent's terrible. Worse than that, I would wager. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I question that decision every time they mention it. But like you said, they don't mention it much. So okay, It was a fun show, Mark continues. A bit like Human Target, which came out a few years later. Well, my Disney Plus watching will be burn notice once we rattle through the Marvel TV shows. Thanks for the great show and all the nostalgia, Mark. Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise to see it on um, Disney Plus. Because I, I was going to watch it all again because it was on Amazon Prime and then disappeared off Amazon Prime. And then it became apparent why it disappeared off Amazon Prime. Uh, because it was a Fox show. And obviously all of Fox has gone to the doomsday machine that is Disney. As it gobbles up everything in its path. In an effort to control everything we see and hear. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. Next time, we'll may revisit Knight Rider. We'll see how that goes. Hey kids, comments at virginmedia.com if you want to drop me a line. And I'll see y'all real soon. It's going to be fine. Take care. Bye-bye.